Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, as usual, but not as usual. We're here with one of our favorite authors who has, in the last several months, made it to our beloved author tab, and he's still alive. (laughs) (laughs) We're here today with Gary D. Schmidt, and we're very excited about that. (laughs) He's glad to still be alive. (laughs) We are too, because we hope there are more books coming. (laughs) Friends, if you've been listening to any of our podcasts in the last year, you will know that we have been reading as much Gary D. Schmidt as we can. We've been reading uh, across the canon, shall we say. And so today we're going to assume that either you've already read some of our favorite books um, or you already know something about Mr. Schmidt. Maybe you know that he's an award-winning author. Maybe you know that he's from Michigan. Maybe you are familiar with Lizzie Bright or you're familiar with the Wednesday Wars. Uh, We want to definitely acknowledge all of that, but we have a lot of sort of geekish questions uh, because this is an author whose stories we love to get lost in, and we want to explore those a little bit. We have heard it said that when you were young, you had a hard time learning to read. Sarah was mentioning to you that we are very concerned about boys and why they do and don't read. Is there anything you can tell us about your experience as far as that issue of getting boys to read? When I was very, very young in first grade, we were tracked. And what that meant is that the school makes a decision and then places you in the in the track that was thought to be appropriate. Yeah. They wanted to hide it from us. And right. so we weren't supposed to know why we were put in a given group. And of course, we all yeah. figured it out very quickly. If you were a smart kid, we had corn stalks, like cardboard and paper stuff, uh, corn stalks on the center of our desk, on the side of our desk. And that meant that you were smart um, and that you would go on and be smart for the rest of your life presumably, and get a good job and all that. And so those kids got the workbooks and got mm-hmm. the focus in terms of uh, reading. And it's just first grade. When they were done with those books, those then went to the average kids and that particular group. And so that group was, or green beans, no kidding, green beans. And so they then got the book. Oh my goodness. But it had already been written in. And so I suppose the teachers erased them as best they could, right. the teacher, but they had been written in. And, you know, it's stupid. It's, it's pretty easy to see those. Those kids were then taught how to read or the rudimentaries. <laughs> and the corn kids yeah. then got the new the new books. And then, of course, as you would imagine, the, the books shifted again when they were all done. Right. But we were the stupid kids. Um, I was a pumpkin. And we were the kids who were, you know, going to serve hamburgers at McDonald's mm. for the rest of our lives. and. It wasn't all that interesting to work with us, I suppose. And so, um, and then the books have been used twice. And, you know, I can trace. I'm not bad at that. Mm-hmm. So um, so then we got them. <laughs> the message was quite clear that we were stupid, that it wasn't important that we learn how to read, um, that our teacher didn't really have any sense that we were smart enough to learn how to read, to do all of that. Um, and so all of that, was very, very clear to us. And that went through first grade and second grade and third grade. So by the time I entered fourth grade and we were then split, so we were no longer all in one group, but we were split according to those tracks. It was, uh, you know, it was clear that there was one class yeah. that was super smart 
and they were track one now. And then there were classes, multiple classes that were average, and they were in track two, and then there were the track three mm -hmm. kids. And those tracks remained in, in effect all the way through high school. I remember that super clearly. The one lovely moment in all of that um, that was different from everything else was our French class. And Madame Haydu, I still remember her name, first grade, into mm -hmm. the class. She was sort of fearsome. We were scared of her. Oh. She had us just speak words, make sounds. And on the basis of that, not on a choice, <laughs> my parents didn't know anything about this. I didn't know what we were doing. But just on the basis of whether we could reproduce certain sounds, we were um, brought into a French class. And so from first grade on, there was a group of maybe 12, 15. Um, and we learned French from the from first grade all the way through the end of, mm -hmm. of high school, which was a delight. Wow. <laughs> wow. But in those early years that I met Ms. Kavakov, um, Ms. Kavakov was a um, the daughter of a rabbi. It was a great teacher. And we just liked each other. And we literally just liked each other. And the day oh. came that she came into the the stupid yeah. classroom where we're all learning how to be stupid. And um, she took me. And I had no idea, and neither did my parents have any idea what was happening. Um, but we, I walked out of the classroom with the contents of my desk. And she took my hand. I remember her holding my hand. And in fourth grade, it is not cool to have your teacher hold your hand. And she brought me down no. to her. Mm -hmm. And right. um, she then taught me how to read. Wow. And I'm hoping that that whole system of making a decision about someone's future is, you know, back in the 60s and has died out. But that was a powerful force. Mm -hmm. When you've been told you're pretty stupid, it takes a while for you to get past that and to realize it was wrong. And I think, I don't know how that yeah. test went. I don't know how the assessment was made. Um I think it had something to do with colors and probably I can't, couldn't answer questions about colors because I'm as colorblind as a dog, but no one had tested me for that. So I don't, uh, I don't know that's true, mm -hmm. but that's what uh, I think had actually happened there. Words were reading was a real scary thing. And you learn very quickly that, that reading is one metric that a lot of people use to determine what kind of a person you are. You also learn very quickly, yeah. actually you learn the very first time, you come up with great coping mechanisms to avoid mm. letting it happen ever again. Mm -hmm. yep. Ever again. So I grew up in the, in the 80s and I was also tracked and was in the turtle group because I didn't, my mom didn't teach me to read before school, like all of my compatriots. And so I was in the dumb kids group too. And, um, for years, I was the teachers would tell my parents that, well, this might just be the very best that you can get out of Sarah. <laughs> this might just be her upper limit <laughs> to just be in that lower track. And then, of course, that's not the story. And when it was time for me to make my big jump, and you know, and then I'm in gifted and talented and go to Hillsdale. So it's just interesting how these early experiences can really prejudice us against ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things we see with so many of your characters is that they all are carrying some kind of burden with them. And one of the things we love, we so we love, we love Okay For Now. It's probably one of our favorites of your books, although there's a lot of your books that we like a lot. 
but we think okay for now is especially special. I know that's a very uncreative way of saying that, uh-huh. but and we love Doug reading to the children and we love all the books that he's reading to them. And so we went and we saw in an interview that you loved the book, The Big Jump. Is that right? Yeah, that was, it's by Benjamin Elkin. There were six of the I Can Read books or something like that. The first two were Dr. Seuss, Cat in the Hat and the Cat in right. the Hat Returns. Um, the Ball of String right. was one. And I don't know, Benjamin mm-hmm. Elkins did a number of them. Um, um, but the, the Big Jump was in the first six. I loved that. I loved that book. I thought it was fantastic. Um, one of the best finds I ever have had in the used bookshop is the first edition of Benjamin Elkins, um, The Big Jump. So yeah, I, I, <gasps> I, I found out. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was great. He was, I think he was an educator in Chicago, if I remember. Well, he might have been a school principal, in fact. Hmm. Oh, so he really understood kids. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, come, it really comes down so frequently, doesn't it, to the great teacher. The teacher who not only cares about the kid, yes. knows how to make mm-hmm. a connection, to help the kid make mm-hmm. a connection between learning whatever he's been told to get past that, just so that the kid can embrace learning and love that and really um, feel yeah. good about that. And I, I still look for books that I can remember as a kid um, because they meant so much to me after I learned how to read because it's sort of affirming. I mean, mm-hmm. right here, I'm reaching over four feet away. This is called The Brave and the Bold. And it's a book that just was a reader. I mean, some it wasn't a particularly important book at all. Uh-huh. But I love this book. I love the pictures. And I could read it. And it was amazing that these pictures were there. And I'd, so I've looked for those to try and find them. Or, I mean, just last year, a kid, uh, a student <laughs> in one of my classes, I had talked about the Bob's Merrill books. It's the childhood of famous American books. Mm-hmm. Yes, we love those books. Yeah. And as biographies, they're ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, the biography, I mean, it's just clearly not, yeah. not even trying. <laughs> right. Um, but they they never claim to. They always said, this is a straight right. biography. But the one that I read was <laughs> Zach know. Taylor. Zach Taylor, right. um, young, rough, and red. And I can't tell you how many times I went to the library <laughs> to take that book out. And after I told the student this, she said, my mother collects those. I bet she's got that book. And she brought it in the next day. And, and so there it is. Oh. <laughs> One of the things that you desperately want is confidence. You mm-hmm. want to show that you're good at something, whether it's mm-hmm. reading or chess or fishing or soccer right. or music or drama or whatever it is, but you want to demonstrate confidence. And I think one of the things that we have mm-hmm. to suggest to a kid is that to a boy particularly is why not make this one of the areas that you can be really, really good at? Yes. Yes. That's how you're going to find things out. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So, we think most people are probably familiar with you from your Newberry books. So the Wednesday Wars and Lizzie Bright. And of course, if once you read the Wednesday Wars, it's hard not to go on to okay for now. And just like that, which I resisted reading just like that, because I knew <laughs> what was going to happen. And I really didn't want to experience yeah, that. Neither did I. Um, once I did, I saw the genius in it. <laughs> We're curious because you really wrote Marilee well. You wrote a girl very, very well. Not to say that men can't write girls and and so on, but we were really impressed because we're very accustomed to your boy voices. 
How did you draw Marilee so well? And Marilee, who was grieving, where did that come from? Yeah, that was um, when I got to that book at the very beginning. I said to myself, it's time to kind of grow up. So I don't want to just have books with just guys, just middle grade guys. Like, isn't it important that I try and do things that are different? So I'm not writing. I'm just afraid of writing the same book again, again, again. Um, And you know that there are writers who have gotten away with that. And I just don't want to be that writer. And so it seemed to me that Marilee was interesting right. and um, that, that there could be some really stories there. I also didn't want it to be a cliched moment, right? Mm-hmm. So that this is going to be a school book, say, and right. it's all about trying to, uh, the girl trying to find her place within a, a clique of girls, a clique of girls. So I wanted to try as much as possible to have things that, yeah. were, um, that were different, that were, that were not expected in that genre. So uh, just like that really began in a very different way. It always began with what happens to Holly. That was always going to be there. Um, but it, when the book was finished, the right. whole story about Matt Coffin was not there. It was, he didn't exist in the book. And there was a lot there about playing the harp, which I thought was wicked funny as mm-hmm. I was writing it because it mm-hmm. just struck me as you, could, you can have a lot of comedy with a harp. It's just such a funny instrument. And then there was a whole <laughs> string of, of, of stories about the equestrian program that was at the school. And if that doesn't sound familiar, it's because I cut the whole thing. I think I worked about eight months mm-hmm. working this equestrian yeah. program in. I studied how you would teach equestrian skills and what it would be like. I mean, all that sort of stuff. I really worked hard at that and then realized it. Wow. It just didn't work. It was just, it just didn't work. So that all got cut. And so wow. suddenly I'm in a book, which is, you know, like 20 page now. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it just felt when it was finally done, that it was just, it was just insular, right? There was just, it was just too tight in the, in the school. Mm. Um, Garrison Keillor talks yeah. about high school as that small fixed universe. And I really like that because I think that's true for a mm-hmm. lot of kids. But it was a really, really tiny fixed universe. And it just wasn't, I just didn't, it just didn't work. So I talked to the editor about it, who's brilliant, Dinah Stevenson. Mm -hmm. And she said, you know, you need a character from outside. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not just inside this girl's school, you Mm -hmm. need to have exploded out. Which was brilliant. And of course, so obvious as Mm -hmm. soon as she said it. But I needed her to say it. And so that's where Matt Coffin comes from. And the idea for him was to be entirely other. So where she is in a relatively safe world, mm-hmm. her father's well-established in terms of his profession. Yes. Um, she doesn't have to leave, yeah. obviously. It's a choice. Yeah. She's safe. She's secure. Matt is exactly the opposite. Um, his parents are gone. Mm-hmm. Who knows where? Right. He's, he's gets, just to survive, he gets caught up in this gang. And it is, of course, Oliver Twist. This is my Dickens homage. And right. so he's brought into right. this world that's, that's very Dickensian. Right, exactly. And um, he's the small kid, just like Oliver, who can yes. help with the theft because he's a small kid. And he's deft with his fingers and such. So right. all that gets started. And the goal, obviously, is mm. to put the two of them together. Meryl Lee, who's trying to find her place right. in this very exclusive, um, wealthy um, world, but it's very, very insular. I mean, they just, they've known each other for generations. And Matt, 
who's trying to find himself mm -hmm. in a world that's just about surviving. I mean, he has no one. There's nothing that's going to um, support right. him. Yeah. And so the two of them are eventually going to come together. It was also my shot at bringing back some characters from Lizzie Bright. So obviously the captain is Will mm -hmm. Hurd from Lizzie Bright. Right. And this is one of our most favorite things about you because Diane loathes series. You know, the idea of reading Percy Jackson and having to read more than one book, no way, never going to happen. But what you do is you give us the opportunity to see that our characters are all grown up and okay in different settings. Right. Like finding Lieutenant Colonel Danny Hupfer, my favorite moment in all of your books was realizing that he and Mighty were okay. Right. And you don't, I, I don't know why that mattered to me so much. And I didn't know that it mattered to me until it <laughs> happened. You know, you don't need to know them. No, you don't have to know them. You can read these books completely independent right. of each other. But if you do know them, it's the greatest Easter egg ever. Yeah, it's, it's been fun to do that. I did, though, have to admit that I really, really wanted to know. I really wanted to know some backstory with Mrs. McNocketer and the and the captain. <laughs> Yeah, you know, she's, <laughs> it's my favorite name ever, McNocketer. I mean, it's just right, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> right. She's based on a, on a uh, teacher, like a headmaster I met at a girls' school in Maine who was very much like this. She's like a character who's being given to me. It's like a blessing, right? It's like a gift. <laughs> but that's fun. I really do enjoy doing that, where you've got characters who reappear or who reappear in different guises. So yeah, Danny Huffer from Wednesday Wars yeah. is now a Marine or retired Marine. He's a Lieutenant Colonel. He's had some hard time. Right. The, the death of Holling weighs on him. And it's, it, for him, is accentuated by the death of an entire platoon. You don't know the story, but it's just a very obscure, right. oblique reference to the fact no. that he's left, he's lost some of the soldiers under his command and so that right. and again since there's no need for me to actually tell you that because of the first person narrator but it's it's uh it tells me something about how he's going to act yeah and sometimes it's just fun so you have mm -hmm. you don't know what happens to lil at the end of okay for now um though i never imagined that she would die yes you do though but you do because of pay attention carter joan <laughs> right and it's uh, a lot of people can go right through that book and not see it that was the best <laughs> Yeah, she made it. And in Hercules, there's, there's a reference to the minister in Just Like That. That's his grandson. The friend of theirs is his grandson that's there. Um, but that, too, is really super oblique. Oh. And so when the minister comes for Thanksgiving, that's the minister from... It's Thanksgiving. Uh, yeah, Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's that's the minister from the other book. Um Oh, but that again was just sort of fun. The whole herd thing was began as sort of fun, so that <laughs> um, okay. So I I used to take a group of about twenty to thirty students to Concord, Massachusetts, and in my college we had a January term where you could go anywhere okay. in the world, and so I would take students to Concord, and it was uh, right. it's wonderful. It's a perfect place to bring. You can study the great Concord writers, Thoreau, Hawthorne. Um, but in that there's a cemetery there, right. Sleepy Hollow, not the Sleepy Hollow of Washington Irving, but a different Sleepy Hollow. And that's where mm -hmm. Hawthorne is buried right. with his wife, um, where his daughter as well is there. Thoreau is there. Louise May Alcott is there. Emerson is there. I mean, just amazing number mm -hmm. of people. The person who wrote the the carol about the pum 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 pum, the drummer yeah. boy one, 
is there. I mean, just on and on and on, these amazing yeah. folks. So wow. they're all, the poets are on Poets Ridge and you walk up there and you know you do worship and all those sorts of things. Um, you bring a pencil to lay it by Thoreau's grave. And Elcott's grave. and At the extreme Eastern mm. end of that cemetery, there's this one obelisk and it's the herd family no one knows them. I mean, there's no particular reason you would know them, but it's just this obelisk says herd, H-U-R-D. And then all around them are very small stones to indicate where the Mm -hmm. small, where they are. So all the herds are taken from the herd family in Concord's Sleepy Hollow Cemetery. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) that's fun. And this hasn't, doesn't have a huge meaning, at least I think on the surface, what I have in mind is connectedness and how in a world in which right. we seem so very, very disconnected right. and in which our technology encourages disconnection, um, maybe I can have these stories right. that are connected in ways that we don't even or can't even possibly understand. Um, and I like that idea. At least I think it's a hopeful idea. Because it's all one big story. Yeah. It goes back to the notion that it's hard to hate someone that you really know. Or it's hard to hate someone whose name you know. Right. It's easy to hate someone whose name you don't know. Right. And if we could recognize connectedness that that's deep, right. that's well below the surface, maybe there are times, I know this is naive, but maybe there are times that we can act differently towards one another. I don't think that's naive. I think that's the goal. But I don't expect necessarily a reader to go come away with that, but it's one of the reasons I do it. Well, in First Boy, do you know who the herds in that family is related to in your, from your other ones? I used to, I used to work really hard at that. I had a family tree (laughs) um, and then it was, you know, after a while it started to feel a little obsessive and a little silly. Um, And I thought, okay, I don't don't really need that to make the same point, but I don't need to know all of those things. It's sort of like <laughs> I don't need to know all of her backstory to know that sometime, somehow, sometime, right. she met Will Hurd and uh, they fell in love, but she did marry him. Right. Uh, but then why does the captain, why does right. Will Hurd take so long um, until he then finally does, in fact, get to marry her at the end? Yeah. And then you get to see Turner because Turner's there at the end of the boat, on the boat, marrying them. Right. It's just a quick, quick right. moment mm-hmm. there. Yeah. And Turner really did become a minister. Exactly. Which, she swears you know, we didn't end the book knowing if he was going to or not. Right. Right. <laughs> and that's based on a real kid in my classes who whose father was a minister. I met him as a freshman. And he swore <laughs> to me I would never, ever in a million years become a pastor. I've had that with my father. It's horrible. I'd never do that. Mm-hmm. And by the end of his fourth year, mm-hmm. he was already in, heading towards seminary. I don't know. It's almost felt like <laughs> that's what you get for saying never. Yeah. But yeah, that's oh, that kind of where, it's where that particular one came in. Well, I had a question about your first one because um, I, I don't remember where I read the sin eater in the progression of your books, but I thought that was a really interesting concept. And I thought, where did, where did you come upon that? Something that I don't think most people know anything about. 
Wow, that book feels like a million years ago, Diane. It's just so far back to Yeah, <laughs> almost um, 20 now. <laughs> hey, this is going to be disappointing to you. Are you ready? I have no yeah. idea what year this is. I think I must have been in junior high or maybe high school. I'm not sure. But there was a mm. show on called The Six Million Dollar Man. And it was with Steve something. Oh, yes. Remember that show? <laughs> so, you know, the big opening yeah. of that show yep. was yeah. this guy who's in a He's in a he's a test pilot, and he's in an accident, and in the accident he's pretty much destroyed, right. and so they rebuild his body and becomes the first sort of cyborg kind of human being. Bigger, faster, stronger. He's six million dollars because that's how much it costs. Yeah. So anyway, that show went on for several years, and they decided at some point that um, they could expand that that concept, and so they had a, a spinoff about the. I think it was the $8 million woman, but I might be wrong about that. I don't remember what the title of the show was. I think they just called her the bionic woman. Was that it? Bionic woman. So they spun it off and I think think both of them were on the show at some times, but she was also by herself. And in that show, and I couldn't tell you why or what the episode was or anything about it in that show, they made reference to this, to the notion of the senior. I don't know how it, I don't know. But I remember being, as a kid, so intrigued by that idea. I mean, because it's amazing. It's an amazing idea, right? I mean, it's not only arcane and odd and superstitious and blah, blah, blah. But in the end, it's a guy who's saying, essentially, Mm -hmm. I will will take on everyone's sins. I will be damned so that everyone else makes it. I mean, that's that talk about Mm -hmm. the ultimate sacrifice. Mm -hmm. That whoever you see that Mm -hmm. as a superstition or whatever or as a bizarre act of faith, it's still someone who says, me, me, I will, I will protect you and I will go, I will die and I will be damned for mm-hmm. you. That's an amazing concept. Mm-hmm. And so it never left me. I, just, um, I still think about that at times. And so it seemed to me early on that that would be a really mm-hmm. interesting one to write about a really interesting idea. And that you're right. That became not the first book, but the first novel. That I did for a child audience. That's not disappointing. I think that's really interesting. No. There's one comment that stuck with you long enough to turn into a book. Right. Exactly. That just tells you you better be careful what you let kids hear. (laughs) If we polled other writers, was there something that happened? Just one comment or a name or an thing? Mm -hmm. The Mm Sparks thing? I think a lot say, yeah, there was this that I wrote that, blah, blah. It hasn't happened to me like that again. You mean um, it's always a much more well. Every time you start, it's a new thing. Interesting. But it's uh, it certainly began mm-hmm. it. Okay, I like that. I do too. <laughs> Mara's stories. Did I understand correctly that you knew people who had survived the concentration camps, and that this idea started with them? I did know people who had survived the camps. Yeah, I grew up on Long Island, and um, there was a large Jewish community there. Yeah, most of my friends were Jewish. Um, Mm -hmm. And so the stories were in the air, Mm. um, though I never heard those stories from the survivors. Mm. Um, They were told by storytellers, uh, for me anyway, the experience that I had. And there was a large group of of Jewish storytellers that did survive, that stayed in Poland for a time until they had to flee the pogroms. The pogroms continued Mm -hmm. after the war. They didn't go away. And so they fled... 
to uh, to right. the states, and most of them, and most of them, many of them went up into the Catskill Mountains. Stories that I heard um, mm. were stories of were folkloric, not the witness stories. Although I heard some a little too. So this isn't mm-hmm. right. these are stories that were told in the barracks, right? Um, as a way, and some I think in many ways right. it's a way to survive. Um, this to create a story out of it. And there's lots of art that did come out of that. I mean, there's a right. Arizan. Do I have it here? Oh, yeah. This is a book called uh, In Memory's Kitchen. This is a cookbook that was put together by women who were being taken to Terezin, which is one of the terrible, terrible Holocaust camps. And they wanted their the traditions of their cooking to survive. So they wrote together communally. Oh. This, uh, they put together these, these, these recipes and they are astounding. And then they wow. hit the manuscript in the in this building, and it wasn't discovered until many years later. I mean, those are amazing stories. Um, wow. There's a new book that's just yes. come out maybe yeah. years or so ago. I think it's called When I Grow Up. In 1939, this is unbelievable. There was a contest um, so that kids who were like 17, 18, 19 all wrote essays anonymously so that they could write freely about what they wanted to be or do when they grew up. Uh, They were all collected, Mm -hmm. and this was in Poland. And the announcement of the winner happened to be the the very day when the Nazis invaded Poland. And so they obviously didn't meet, and they took the manuscript and hid it, all the manuscripts, and hid them. And then... uh, after the war, wow. it seemed like they were going to be able to trust Stalin. And so they were brought out again mm-hmm. by those who remembered. But he obviously turned yeah. against them. And the things were hidden once again in an old church. Mm-hmm. And just, I think it's now four or five years ago. It's an amazing mm-hmm. thing. The church was about to be demolished. And they found the manuscripts, some of which were hidden inside the organ pipes. And so they have now published this book. Wow. It just came out, I think, the year, two years ago, where six of those have been um, translated. They're all in Yiddish. Six of them were translated, and then um, graphic novel form, a format for them, was, was added. And it's, I mean, this is kids saying oh, wow. what I want to be when I grow up, and probably not a single one of those who will survive that. So the poignancy of it is extraordinary. Right, right. So anyway, I, when I was growing up, the stories mm-hmm. I heard were folk yes. tales, and I loved them. Um, the title story um, of the book mm-hmm. I heard from my friend Mark, who was a cellist, who heard it from his father, mm-hmm. who was a cellist with the New York Philharmonic, and he had heard it from one of the folks who had fled, from mm-hmm. the rabbis who had fled Poland, um, fled Auschwitz after the war. So it was, you know, what, four to- four stories away, four listeners away from the origin of that story. Right. So yeah, I, if I had only one book that survived, I think that would be the one I'd choose. It's really close to my heart. I was going to ask you today, what would be the book, the one that you would want to be remembered for if, if there could only be one? Yeah, that would be it. Typically, we've been formed by oral tradition. And so I think it's actually very interesting that you've written a book about what is largely oral tradition, which is great because I wouldn't have had the benefit of some of those stories had I not been able to read them. I think the book, your book, beautifully preserves something that would otherwise potentially be lost. 
And I'm grateful for that because those are really, really beautiful stories. They rip your heart out, but they are beautiful. Yeah, I think so too. They're, they're just amazing. Um, when I finished it, there was, I mean, it, it, it was there was this moment when it was all done, manuscript is all set, and I'm thinking, okay, I, I can send this off now, which is really a nice moment, right? And it really struck me, <laughs> right. I mean, the central question, can guy who's, I mean, I'm, I'm German. I mean, can a guy who grew up right. in a family that had only been across for several generations tell these stories? Is that wrong? Mm-hmm. And so I sent the whole manuscript. This is, uh, this is when I was young, right? I sent the whole manuscript to Elie Wiesel. <gasps> no way. And I, uh, I said, tell me, I mean, is this okay? <gasps> no way. Is, yeah, is this okay? Or should I, <laughs> should I just say, give it to you or just, you know, give it to someone else. Um, and let you do it, this. Right. Yeah. And let them write it, recast it. So it wouldn't be me. And he wrote back this lovely letter. Which, by the way, I, mm. I just cleaned out my office at uh, my university, and I just literally found this letter again. Oh, wow! Uh, this lovely letter in which he says these are stories that are important and, and are stories of social justice. You must get these published. So I sent them off um, to Nina, oh. Nina Ignatowitz, who has sworn—I didn't know this—who had sworn that she would never publish another book about that was in a war or had guns in it. Um, she had just absolutely learned oh, wow. that. And I sent wow. this, this manuscript off. It's hol- these Holocaust uh-huh. stories. And she took them. I would always be grateful to that, her for that. Wow. I'm sad that this book is not more well-known. And I'm going to talk about it a lot uh-huh. so that more people know about okay. it. Because I think it's really important. I do think about it. I think I could write these better now. Because I was just at the beginning of my career. Mm. But you don't get to do that, right? You don't get to go mm-hmm. back and revise books that are already right. done. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. You yeah. just have to say... You, you don't write... get to raise your children a second time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you write with the skills that you've got <laughs> at the time and hope that it's going to work. And I, I, so <laughs> I, I look at those and I sometimes go, oh, I could do that so much better now, but I think it's okay. I think the Lord knew. <laughs> so that the Holy Spirit decided and you were compliant so we got to leave it there right Right. he has to just let him let him have his way but you also have to start somewhere and you're always going to have the first ones right right exactly Mm -hmm. right right one of the big changes in the world of writing for kids i think is exactly along those lines maury sendak used to talk about how his his early books he thought were not all that good um like a hole is to dig was a good example Mm. they're okay and he said that what yeah, was really yeah. the case is that here's Ursula right. Nordstrom, who takes him up as an apprentice. So he's learning, as mm-hmm. he's publishing books, mm-hmm. he's learning how to do them. Mm-hmm. So by the time 1963, 1964 right. comes along, he's published a bunch of books. And he wouldn't be known, I think, right. as a great illustrator um, if it was just that body. Um, but then in 1964, out comes mm-hmm. Where the Wild Things Are. Which is a brilliant book, probably the the best children's Game book changer. of the century. Mm. I think you could argue that. Um, mm. And it's it was mm. he's prepared for it because he's done all that work. Today, that would never happen. I mean, the the pressure to to on editors, on agents, on the whole market 
is to get a book that's not only going to make money, but make a lot of money. And so anytime a new right. author comes in, yeah. the question is, will that, will that author get published today if the house is not quite sure that it's going to make a lot of money? And that's mm. a huge, mm -hmm. what pressure? I mean, it's pressure. So for an editor, if I have two books I'm going to look at, yeah. one is a brilliant book by a new writer who's completely unknown. One is a book that's, oh, it's okay, but it's by someone right. that's really, really well known. Which book am I going to take? And the pressure right. will be the second one, right? That that's the profitable one. Box. Mm -hmm. And that's right. hard. That's really too bad that we don't have right. um, some system or some, I don't know, that system is the wrong word, but a willingness to say, okay, we're going to take books and we're going to make them and use an apprentice, this author or this illustrator into this world. It just doesn't happen in that same way. And, you know, I understand that, right? I mean, a publisher is not a philanthropic society. It's a publisher is a, pub, a, a company right. that needs to make money. And so I get the drive um, for that. But I'm not sure that this system has served us as well as it could. No. Do you think that authors can mentor authors? Or do you think that that mentoring really has to happen in the hands of an editor? Oh, I think both. Um, I work with an organization called Whale Rock, which is one of the delights of my life right now. Um, and it's a group of three or four writers. Mm. Um, I work with Kathy Erskine. Kathy Erskine, I mean, come on. This is, she's fantastic. Um, and Shelly Tanaka, who's mm. an editor, uh, but also an author. Um, and Sherry Becker, mm -hmm. and uh, who's also a picture book writer and a novelist. And so in this organization, we mentor writers uh -huh. who are work, writing for young readers. I, I'll meet with them tomorrow night, one group, and then I'll meet for a workshop in Maryland on Sunday. Um, and the idea is, uh, is it possible Brilliant. to mentor? Can we mentor new writers in the field um, so that when they send their manuscripts in, they have a really good shot at making this happen? Um, Patty Lee Gouch is part of that as well, the, the great, great right. editor uh, over at Philomel. She did Al Moon, yeah. she did uh, Polacco. I mean, all those. Uh, oh, yeah. It's just brilliant. Yeah. It's just brilliant. Yeah. So, yeah, I do think that that's mm. actually an important element of this. That we, um, we, could, we need to yeah. find ways where we are mentoring each other, really, so that we do have opportunities to learn and to grow. Right. And that's when you think of, I mean, because we do need great awards, right? The Caldecott's if you're an illustrator, the Newberry if you're a, um, a novelist. I mean, the usefulness of those Writer. is that you mm. have 16 people who sit down and work really hard to find the best books of the year. And my job as a writer is to say, when they come out, thank you. This is an amazing thing that you've done to go buy all those books, to read them carefully, and to think, oh, <laughs> what can I learn from these writers? Right. And you always, always learn a lot mm -hmm. from, from reading those books. Those are the, That's the best mm. part of the Newberries, for the writer, I should say. That's the best part of what those major awards can give you. Right. Hmm. That leads us to an interesting question, actually. We have noticed that the Newberry books tend to be rewarding certain characters in stories who have particular behaviors. And it's one of the things we appreciate about your books is that your characters don't have those behaviors. I don't think our concern is that children need to read stories where the main characters don't ever do anything wrong. Our concern is that we have authors who are writing many, many characters who don't need adults. Adults are not as smart as they are. 
they will do anything they have to to show the adults that the children know better. And what you do in every book I've read so far is that the children think they're alone and they're suddenly surrounded by a community of adults who care about them, even though they're not their family. Yeah, and that might have a lot to do with with me growing up. Yeah, and that Mm. that was true for me. I mean, I had wonderful teachers. When I look back Mm. on my life, I had wonderful teachers. I lived with my grandmother. Um, She was amazing and wonderful and incredibly formative in my life. Um, I had a good community of adults, um, Sunday school teachers who were that way. I had a Sunday school teacher, Mm. believe it or not, Mm. Mr. Skula, who let me drive his tow truck around his gas station. I was 12 years old. And I'm driving. So is this where all of the young boy driving comes from? (laughs) Absolutely. I was 12. And I'm driving. I can't even tell you how amazingly cool that was um and you know oh, how much that's hilarious you go back to school and you say what was that seventh grade i guess or something and he said yeah this this uh sunday afternoon yeah. after sunday school and i i drove mr school's tow truck around his gas station i know what that meant is that you go you know you're just driving around <laughs> bowling, right you're not even going on a road um right but it was still huge right. and he trusted us he trusted us to do that it was kind of cool what a- yeah I think for me, the, the stories, I do want to have a character who's a mentor sort of character who's guiding people along the way um, and who has enough love mm-hmm. and yeah. experience and um, wit and understanding that he can do that and is or she and, and that they're perceptive, mm-hmm. enough, perceptive enough to know the needs mm-hmm. of a kiddo. Um, I guess on the other ones, it seems to me that if I was doing something like what you've described, um, others are doing there, I think I might say to you something like, um, I know these kids. I know kids who don't this have This is real that. for them. And mm-hmm. when, you, when, we, when we think, yeah. you know, these kids have to find their own way because they don't have a, they're smarter than the parents around them. I think um, I know yeah. them. I've taught enough in prisons. I taught in a maximum security prison to know yeah that there are an unbelievable number of kids and maybe these days, maybe even moving towards the majority where they don't have those adults in their life and they have to find their own way in that. It's not necessarily a bad thing out there that there are books that say to those kids, you know, it's, it would have been sweet. It would have been sweet for you to have this support but you didn't. And yeah. here's a kid who still somehow makes it. Yeah. I mean, that's Robert Cormier writing um, in chocolate war and also the, Oh, the terrorist one um, after the first death, I think it's called. And then a, particularly in a book called tenderness mm-hmm. where there are, there's, there are these kids who really have nothing and, or who are really, um, mm-hmm. Abuse isn't the isn't a strong enough word, and so I yeah I'm not right, sure I'm ready right. to say I don't like these books. Right, right. By that measure, I mean this is why orbiting Jupiter is so important. A difficult story. It's necessary because it does represent an entire demographic of children today. Joseph and Jack are real kids. I met them in a prison in northern mm-hmm. Michigan. Mm-hmm. 
um, Jack's real name is Jake, yeah. mm -hmm. and he's fine, right? He's been adopted too, mm -hmm. and you know he hasn't had right. the roughness of of Joseph. Um, Joseph, and mm -hmm. I mean the description is exactly as this real kid is. He was in eighth grade. He'd been in prison for a year. No kidding, no kidding. In prison for a year. Wow. Um, so hard, just so hard. And a small guy. I, I don't know how he mm -hmm. even survived in this in that world. But this is a kid who was beat up, who had no one. But then suddenly in this story, because it's what I do, I guess, he finds those those people. And he finds this family right. that is going to watch over him and that most certainly would have adopted him. And what he wants is of course that they will also adopt Jupiter. Right. And so they would live, in a sense, right. as brother and sister, I suppose, but it really would be father-daughter would at least be back in this right. in this world, or at least in the, in the same family. And so when Jack's parents are going to talk about this, that's what they're talking about. I mean, that's what will they will they be able to adopt mm -hmm. Jupiter? And that actually happened in my family um, two mm -hmm. generations ago, where the, um, the mother wow. gave birth. It was all hidden, hush, hush. And then the grandparents, supposed grandparents, mm -hmm. adopted um, adopted that child as their their child. So the mother and the daughter lived as oh. sister sister. Um, harder to do today, sisters. Um, yes, but it was that's how it went. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that book has been. Um, it's an interesting thing. I think among kids, it's the one of the, the better known books. Um, I have taken a lot of criticism mm. for that book. Oh, but. Okay, maybe that's good sometimes. Well, we thank you for it. It's, I mean, it's difficult. Yeah, it's it's hard. Um, the sequel, I actually after I'm done with you guys, um, we'll probably have supper or something, and then I'll spend the rest of the night going through the first set of galleys for the sequel to this. It's called Jupiter wow. Rising, and it takes place a year and a half later. Oh, yay! Oh, beautiful. Yeah, Diane, you won't like it because this is the first time it's a real sequel. It's not just oblique, but it's the first book. That's been oh yeah, I mean this to be a sequel book. I'll give it a try. <laughs> All right. We we did an episode on just like that, and at the end of it, Diane said, "You know, I'm going to say something here." She said, "I think this book needs a sequel," and we all went, "What?" <laughs> More like a backstory. <laughs> Would you do Matt? Yes, we all want more Matt. Oh, okay. <laughs> I wanted the backstory of Mrs. McNocketer and the and the captain. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll have to think about that more. So that's not really a sequel. <laughs> so where did trouble come from? I thought trouble was haunting and it was elegant. I really cared a lot and I I didn't really know who I was rooting for the whole time and I was yeah. still surprised by the way it all turned out. Yeah, that was, um, I told you I had this group of students I would take to Concord every January. Um, Concord is a, is right. a very wealthy town. And there's a place there called, uh, a school there called Concord Academy, where it's this, the school, the mm. boarding school for the super wealthy. Got it. Um, a lot of our congressmen, representatives, and senators have gone to that school. And what is stunning about it and it happened again and again, is that my students would walk around and, you know, they're college students and they're not wealthy college students. 
And so they would have to watch their money. They just mm -hmm. spent money to come with me on this. Um, they would go to these mm -hmm. stores like a bookstore and they might buy, you know, a couple of paperbacks or something. Um, but there are these kind of exclusive stores that kids would go in. My students would go in. There's a sporting goods store there, for example, that oh. would knock your eyes out. And they could never afford something. Uh -huh. I mean, they would never be able, I mean, maybe no. a pair of socks. But then these kids would come in and right. they all sort of dressed alike. And they uh, had dad's platinum card. And they would get whatever they wanted. Mm, of course. And it was never a sort of, I'll mm -hmm. get this or that. It was, I'll get them both. Or it was never, I'll right. save up for this. I'll just get it. And their tremendous wealth, mm -hmm. of which they were almost unaware, meant sort of right. that they were safe, that they could do what they wanted. It mm -hmm. never surprises me that we come to the end of, an, of a fiscal year and the U.S. government has gone $2 trillion over, over budget. Right. It's play money. Yeah. They don't, they don't balance right. their checkbooks. I mean, They've never lived on a budget. That. No, right. they have this no idea. Money. Right. There's no concept of it. So when I'm looking at that and you hear $2 trillion, how can you go $2 trillion over a budget? I mean, how, I said, how would you do that? Right. It's obvious. I mean, they don't even <laughs> think about that. So that whole concept just struck me as this could be really interesting to have a kid who believes that because he's so wealthy, it's not even a conscious thought who just assumes that he's so wealthy that he does, never has to mm -hmm. worry about money he could just he'll always be safe he'll always be protected um so and then mm -hmm. he finds out that it's not true that that's not true that that trouble is going to come right. anyway so it starts off with the sea yeah. flower which is a true story um until the very end there i wondered it's amazing it's king philip's war in which the native americans of mm -hmm. new england almost drove the white settlers out it was that close it was really close but wow. at the end of that war, um, wow. King Philip was uh, executed, Native American was executed, and a number of the um, Native Americans who participated against the settlers were then put on the sea flower, true story, and they were sent down to the Caribbean to be enslaved. Mm -hmm. No one wanted them down there because they had mm -hmm. been rebellious. And so they then reversed mm -hmm. the triangle, mm -hmm. and the slaves, those Native Americans, were taken to the coast of Africa. They seem to have landed in Morocco, unclear, but then the whole thing is lost to history. No one knows what happened to the ship or to those people. And so I just had the ship brought back. So that's, that's the only piece of fiction in that okay. story there. Um, so that to Got suggest it. that even on this really lovely coastline with tremendous wealth and privilege, bad things have happened. There are skeletons. So the coast is from uh, Cape Ann. Um, I went to school on Cape Ann mm -hmm. and it was, uh, you know, the, the lovely coast, big old houses, blah, blah, blah. And so I spent a lot of time mm -hmm. describing that and I wanted it to be a really lovely mm -hmm. place, but I also wanted to, to make sure that this character is going to come to the end of the story and figure, oh, wait a minute, I was wrong. That trouble can come anywhere. Mm -hmm. How? So how am I going to deal with mm -hmm. it? And that was the big impetus of that book. Yeah. Wow. And so the Cambodians, what was the inspiration for that? So easy to focus on the really awful things that happened in our world. But certainly one of the really sweet mm -hmm. things that has also happened is the embracing in New England of immigrant communities that are really refugee communities. 
And in New England, the Cambodian right. community yeah. is one, and Maine is a Somalian community oh. that has been really, okay. really well embraced, has become part of particularly Portland area. You know, I, I hear those stories and I just go, all right, you know, we're not completely awful people. We, we, have, we, we can learn. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's what I wanted to do was to do that. And of course, the Cambodian folks, and this isn't in the book, because in some ways it's just so awful, is experiencing its own Holocaust. And, and this is all straight. And so here these people are coming mm-hmm. and they have experienced unbelievable slaughter and unbelievable oppression. They've right. come by usually right. boat all this way, not even knowing what's at the end. Right. I mean, can you imagine? They have nothing. And they're just hoping that when they land somewhere that maybe they'll be embraced. Mm-hmm. And the stories that I read about those communities amazing and powerful and extraordinary and hopeful and uh, that one image of the guy um, who breathes out and sees his breath in the cold air of new england for the very first time yeah that has always stayed with me yep and i mean just talk think about that you've never seen that happen to you but now you're in new england in this strange (laughs) new world and you can it's so strange that your breath you can see your breath how strange it's like a folktale right and yet there it is, people in New England step up. They step up and they say, yes, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to bring you in and we're going to find ways to make this work for you. Che, at one point, you know, he takes the burden of Louisa hitting her brother mm-hmm. um, in the car. He takes the, the, right. the rap for that. And is, you know, it's really, right. really a bad consequences for him. But he does it because he cares about her. When the book was first written, his name right. was Tony. And he was Italian. He was second generation. His father was a stonecutter. They had moved over mm. here. He was delivering pizza to the house. And you can see it's all, <laughs> I mean, it's Romeo and Juliet, right? It's just so silly and stupid. Right, um, yeah. So that all kind of changed. <laughs> yeah. And the names are meant to be fun. So Henry, they're all conquered names. So Henry is Henry David Thoreau. Louisa is Louisa May Alcott. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so it's been, uh, that was fun to do. It was fun to do. We don't want to keep you too much longer, but we did want to ask you before we stop, if there's anything that you would like to tell our listeners that you never get a chance to say, or just something you feel like you want to end with. Let me tell you about next projects. I don't know if you know a writer named Ron Kirchie, K-O-E-R-T-G-E. He was, um, he wrote for young adults. Um, I bet you'd recognize some of the titles. Um, he was really edgy and he wrote, he was part of the great, um, the definition of the problem novel um, back 20, 30 years ago. And he was one of that group that tried to define that for what, young, what that meant for young adults. Um, also for TV. Oh, so he, um, uh, there was a show called, uh, oh, one of the first cop shows, Hill Street Blues. Remember that show? Oh, yes. Um, uh, Ron yeah. Rose for television. Yeah. That. yeah. So Ron writes really fast. Anyway, um, we've gotten to know each other. We taught together in an MFA program. And we decided to try and write books together, which is not not easy oh. to do. Because you're, you're trying to negotiate no. not just the story, yeah. but the telling. And so um, the we did one book called, mm-hmm. we finished one book called uh, On the Beach, I think it's called. And it's a collection of 30 short stories. And it was very short, like four pages. It was so much fun. I can't tell you. Um, oh. I always felt like I was playing catch up. 
So like I would write one story and Ron would write four. Then I would write three stories and Ron would write seven. <laughs> and it was always like that. And I think we wrote 45 and then help our, our, uh, our agent helped us to sort of narrow that down to the 30 best ones. Um, so that'll come out Beautiful. a year, a year from, I guess not this spring, but the next spring. And right now we're working on the okay. second, um, we worked on the second and third together and those have been wicked good fun. Um, in the first one, there's a kid named Simon who was killed. Here's an odd thing to start with killed in the Peloponnesian Wars. <laughs> like it's in 400 oh, BC. Yes. Wow. And so it's a it's myth, okay. right? It's the great myths. And so Simon right. has been trying to get out of Hades right. since that time. And he's finally able to get out of Hades. Oh. He gets past <gasps> Sisyphus and, <laughs> Cerberus and all that. Oh, he gets out and he sees a long pad and climbs it. Yeah. There's a, a steel door in front of him or a metal door, opens it up and there's bright light. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, the seventh grade boys' room of a middle school in uh, St. Louis. <laughs> and it's so suddenly here's this, this kid. And it's, it was such a delight. Um, and I think we're moving to, from just that idea and all the comedy that it gives us because it gives us a lot of comedy. Um, but also what, oh, can, yeah. what seriousness, what, what serious thing can we think about beneath it? And that's going to be about memory. Mm. I think, um, how is our memory? How powerful is our memory? And it's been really, really fun. Oh, we have to wait for that to work with <laughs> uh, that. There's going to be the three of them will be each one a year for the next three years. Okay. And then the third one okay. is a, um, it's a, it's an epistolary novel. I don't know if people are going to read this or not, but we both like it. We love epistolary novels. You, we are big. I think they're wonderful. Yeah. So there's there's ten kids in Portland. I think they're marvelous. Maine, yeah. And yeah, there's ten kids in Portland. There's ten kids in L.A. And then um, their teachers are sisters, and so they force these kids to write letters back and forth, and uh, oh, they have to use paper. Fun. They have to use pen. <laughs> They have to yeah, put them in pens. envelopes with yes. real stamps, right? With stamps. So it's, <laughs> yes, it's and wait for them to be mailed. So <laughs> and pretty much that's done. Uh, there's, there's more um, stuff to work on, but the, the most of it's finished. And what's really, really good is um, what's really fun about it was that each one starts with, I mean, kids are not going to be vulnerable right away, right? If I'm going to write, if I'm right. a seventh no, grader, yeah. I'm not going to send a vulnerable letter to another guy, right? But it's right. the growing vulnerability right. between them and um, how that changes. Yeah. And then how some of the letters cross to other kids and how they come to understand each other. Yeah. It was it was really, really good fun. I hope it's fine. The first two oh, are already yes. contracted. That's all settled. But the other one, we'll see if they mm -hmm. take it or not. But that's been, yeah, so those that's the oh, next neat. the next part of it and i really have enjoyed um collaborating i haven't done this before um but i'm really just kind of mm -hmm. liking it and do you know jacqueline briggs martin do you know that name she did snowflake bentley oh yes of course yeah mm -hmm. so we're working on a book about in uh set in iowa about this again i don't want to write the same book again and again so i want to find different things so this is about um daylighting no kidding. And daylighting is when, okay, so if you had a town back in the 1800s and a river goes through the middle of the town, mm -hmm. what they tended to do was to cover the rivers up and let them run underground. 
so that you would have a street there so um, and they didn't need the water power anymore. Well, now towns are doing the reverse. They're, it's called daylighting where they go back to where oh. they know there's a river beneath the street and they are opening that up and then using that as a way of marketing. Wow. Um, Walkers did it in New York. Yeah. Um, and there's quite a few. So there's a really lovely, um, lovely example of that called on the B branch, B-E-E, of the Mississippi River. And so mm-hmm. we're going to write about that process. Oh, wow. And so I'm, hope, mm. I'm hoping that that will come out too. And it's so different from anything I've ever done. So I'm hoping that I can be, wow. I can stretch a little bit more. Oh, now we have to wait. <laughs> my first graphic novel will be out um let's see probably in a year and a half and it's set in the ukraine it won't be in this country though it's being published in brussels um in french so it'll be uh i don't know if it'll make it here or not but i love the idea of wow I mean, graphic novels really this is they sort of begin in brussels and so that's the uh that's okay. the hope i really want to start it there and if they make it there you got make it. It, yeah. <laughs> if you make it in brussels you can make it anywhere kind of thing <laughs> <laughs> well i went there i went with my son once um to brussels and to paris because they had just one of the books was being translated into french and so i went to meet with the editor in paris and then there was, oh. I guess there was another thing that was being done in Brussels. I forget what it was now, but we got to meet some of the editors there and they said, you know, why don't you try something for us? And I'm thinking, okay, you know, why not? Why not? And so this is a, it's yeah. a folktale. Oh. So yeah, and it was, it was just a, a delight to try and make it work and it felt good. My French, you know, I did have French for 12 years, so it isn't terrible, right? but it isn't good. So they'll uh, they'll work with the translation. <laughs> so did you you wrote it in French then? You didn't write it in English, and they translated. No, I wrote it in English because I wanted to make sure that was going to work. Oh, you did. And then um, then we'll got it. I'll do got some it. of the translation, but I think they'll probably just throw it all out, and they'll just they'll just say we'll take care of it. <laughs> say we can do this better. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Let's that. humor the poor boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let him try it. Let him try. So, like, was, I was once asked to do a, um, uh, like, an audio version of one of the books. It was a uh, Pilgrim's Progress that I did. Yeah. And so they asked me to do an audio. Oh, of yeah. It. And I so I I did. I, I I sent in a tape. They sent me this tape, and here's how you do it. Blah blah blah. Tell, now you know how long ago it was. And they wrote back and said, "Thank you very much. We'll use our own people." <laughs> and I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so I sent it. <laughs> Hercules Beale plays almost on repeat in this house because I have two boys and a girl who are um, 12 through 16 and it's they just love Herc. <laughs> they love Herc oh, okay. a lot. That's, that's, oh nice. Yeah that one started with a place. It was um, when I was a boy my grandmother lived on Cape Cod so we went up there a lot oh. and if you drive the length of the Cape mm-hmm. Cod and then head up to Provincetown the town just but just south of Provincetown is Truro and where Provincetown mm-hmm. is all artsy community um, and many of the towns in, mm-hmm. in, on Cape Cod are dominated by tourism interests Truro is not right. um, and it is this beautiful stretch of beaches oh. and you really can 
stand on this one dune and you can see Cape Cod Bay on one side and the Atlantic oh. on the other. It's spectacularly beautiful. And it's the place where wow. Henry David Thoreau, who had a book called Cape Cod, although it came out after his death, but mm-hmm. he writes about Cape Cod standing there. He says, a man, a man can stand on Cape Cod and put all America behind him. And it's literally true. Ooh. You can put your back to America wow. on a dune on Cape Cod, yeah. by Truro. And all of America is behind you. Yeah. And it's, it, yeah. I don't know why I remembered oh, that no. line, but it really struck me as that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, and so in that book, the yeah. question, of course, is, is it possible for Hercules to stand on the dune and look towards the sun, greet his parents every morning and put the terrible, yeah. overwhelming grief that he has behind him? Not that it's going to go mm-hmm. away because yeah, it I won't, mm-hmm. but that he'll learn to live with it. No, um, that was the question right. of that book. This has been truly wonderful. We just so appreciate your time and your storytelling. Uh, this is a delight for us. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for doing it. Lovely to meet you. Yeah, it was great to meet you. Good to meet you guys. Thank you for doing this, and thank you for doing your work. No, it's, this is great that you're <laughs> doing these, and I I love that you're doing these reviews. It's pretty, mm. pretty fantastic. So thank you for doing that work. It takes, I'm imagining that it, particularly when you do these reviews, that they must take you a ton of time because you're not just reading through these books quickly. No. But you're developing this yeah. sort of organization. So that's, that's a lot. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. We really enjoy being able to invite people into stories. And I have to tell you just personally, we have always loved John James Audubon, huge fans. My boys are very artistically inclined. My- oh my gosh, really? Oh, yes. So they, my boys draw Audubon constantly ever since Okay for Now. Like they were always a little intimidated by it. But the way that you describe Doug's process of learning how you capture the feathers or why you wouldn't put all the feathers, you would only do the one, that yeah. technique kind of gave my boys permission to get their hand to, to be risky and to try to do try this. And so they sure. thank you for your story fueling Thanks. their fire in that regard. So you should tell them one of the untold stories about Audubon and someday I might even do this myself is that when he traveled, I mean, obviously he doesn't have anything like cameras or even a, even really sophisticated right. binoculars that are going to work. So most of the birds that he's drawn, he's actually shot and killed. So he doesn't right. see them. He, he doesn't see them on, you know, in their natural habitat. In the sense, they're 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 dead, obviously. Right. But all the birds, except for one, are pictured um, as living and on a branch or something. And he didn't draw the trees or the bushes or the leaves or the branches. Those were actually drawn by a young boy who traveled with him, who was super skilled, what? as you can imagine. Yeah. So when you look at wow. those original pictures, all of which are hand done, by the yes. way, that's why this is so remarkable because each one is hand colored. So there right. are no two that are the same. Yeah. Um, the ones that the drawings for the etchings that will eventually be made from that, the, the, those drawings are done by this young boy. I think that would be fantastic to write up that kid's story. Who was he? Yeah. How did he yeah. get so good at this? Yeah. What was their relationship? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, how did that all work out? Oh, you know, wow. how did he. I mean, were there disagreements? I mean, it would be mm-hmm. so interesting to know mm-hmm. a lot of that. And 
I don't know. I don't know if Audubon has the uh, has journals if that kid had journals or told his story or or how it. I, my sense wow. is that Audubon, who was a salesman at heart, probably downplayed that. Mm-hmm. But I think. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I don't know. So I would like to know if even if I didn't work on it, I'd still yeah. like to know what happened with that. Now we need to know. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Wouldn't that be a fascinating story? <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that would be. And I mean, the temptation is just to make it up, right? I mean, you can make that up. Right. There is a kind of genre there where art is a way for someone to express a movement into, into maturity or to growth or from this from here to there. Um, yeah. So that, I mean, is that the trope? Is that what happened with him? I, I don't know. But it would be neat to know. And I love how you gave us stories about the birds. Ah. Diane and I both have lending libraries in our homes. I, I have 5,600 books and Diane has a couple thousand books. Wow. And we have, I have 25 families that come and check books out of my house. And so I always have Audubon on display. <laughs> my sure. nod to okay for now. Really when we're looking through the plates, I am thinking about them now in the way that Doug would you know, contemplating them from that perspective. And I've, I found that just to be a really interesting way into Audubon's art, a different way of thinking of it. Yeah. So. I'm not an artist. And the the question of when I was writing that was when those interpretations come up for the different birds, should they be highly sophisticated, like, like a really expert vision of it? Mm, and right. then I decided, no, mm. Mr. Powell, amateur. Uh-huh. even Doug isn't really about that he's looking at those birds and he's interpreting them according to what he's going through right then right right and so sometimes they're wrong so at the beginning when the arctic turn right. is falling into the he says that it's falling into the water well no it's not it's perfectly yeah. safe it's perfectly in control but mm-hmm. that doesn't work right at the end mm-hmm. when he says you know it, it'll go anywhere it wants to that mm-hmm. and yeah, that's and uh, and pay attention, Carter Jones. You later hear that he goes to Europe to study art. Yes, and that's that's yeah. just him trying to understand, trying to interpret the art according to where he is right then. Mm-hmm. And that's what right. I really aimed at for that. Plus, I did not know literally until I got the galleys that um, before the book is published, we're going to include the pictures. That was never. Oh, I, think I, thought. Oh. I did not know that. Oh. So, oh wow! Um, so when it came out, when I got the galleys, and I think they just wanted to surprise me, um, mm. I was surprised. I was sort of shocked. And like you said, it's not really about the plate; it's about Doug's experience and Doug making sense of his life right. through looking at exactly. the plate. So that's perfect. Right. <laughs> oh wow! Well, and it was it was hard in the book <laughs> because I needed nine plates that told a story. Mm-hmm. And what he did was mm-hmm. to um, eat, and I had one volume. I knew it was going to be one volume. So mm-hmm. uh, the original that he's working with had four volumes, a mm-hmm. uh, hundred plates in each mm-hmm. one, except for the last one that had four thirty-five. And they came out in sets of five. So it'd be one big narrative picture, a smaller second one, um, and then three like a bird on a branch, without any sort mm-hmm. of storyline behind it. So that meant that in any given volume, there was there was only like a there was essentially 20 pictures that you could choose from. And I needed I needed 20 or 10, not nine rather, 
that would give me some good stories that I could work with those stories in the book. So I started um, one volume and there was a picture of a bird on a branch. The branch was dead. The tree was dead. It was in a desert. It was an owl, actually, kind of owl. And I thought, perfect. There's Doug, right? He's all alone in this desert area. Yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah, wrote the whole first chapter up with that with that stupid owl, and then couldn't find eight more in that volume that would fit. Oh, no. So it no. work. And the whole thing got thrown away. And then the books, oh. the birds are organized not necessarily by species, but by place. So he organized them by where right. the birds lived. And that's why all the birds are seabirds or mm. shorebirds, not seabirds, shorebirds, because mm-hmm. all the birds in that volume. Our, our shorebirds. We're shorebirds. And that seemed to work too. Gotcha. You know, you're between, you're in this liminal space between this and that. That seemed to work pretty well as yeah. well. So that's why they're all that from that particular volume. But I lost the owl, which is crazy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so now you just need the owl framed in your office or something as a reminder of it because you loved it, even though go. you had to lose it. There we go. <laughs> Exactly right. What a joy it is to talk with one of our beloved authors. This was a real treat, and we are thrilled to be able to share this with all of you. We want to just remind all of you that we mean it when we say that we love Gary D. Schmidt's work, and we've done a lot of work on it, and we'll continue to do a little bit more. So if you head over to our website, you can click on the Beloved Authors tab and see the Gary D. Schmidt tab, and that should take you to other podcast episodes we have done for book clubs with his books, take you to all of our reviews that we've done for him, and we have some other projects coming up as well that we're going to do that will help you enter into the world of Gary's writing a little bit better. Uh, this is a delight for us, so thank you. Thank you so much. We we can't thank you enough. Thanks. Thanks so much, guys, and thanks for doing this. This has been really fun. So, friends, we love chatting with you. Please feel free to reach out and tell us what you think about this episode, and feel free to share this episode with your friends. We think it's wonderful when we can understand a little bit better the story behind the story. So don't be shy. Share this with your friends. And head over and chat with us on Facebook, Instagram, or come hang out with us in the BiblioGuides online community, which is the Mighty Network. Everything will be linked in the show notes. So, friends, until next time, 